Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Psalm 51, beginning with the introduction. And the word of the Lord reads, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the word of the sovereign Lord. So here we are again, Easter Sunday, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's exactly what it is. Today is the day after the Sabbath during the Jewish festival of the Passover. Friday evening was the beginning of the Passover for this year, which means Friday during the day was Good Friday, which is the anniversary of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And if you will remember, right, if you remember the story of Jesus Christ, that they broke the legs of the other men that were crucified with him so that they would die quicker because they didn't want anyone on the cross during the the Sabbath of the Passover. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. Um, In fact, in John chapter 19, it reads this way. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would, would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And in verse 36 it says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, that no one of his, not one of his bones was broken. And again, another scripture says that they look, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus died on the cross and was buried Friday during the day. And then when the evening came, the Sabbath and the Passover began. And then Sunday morning, the very first day of the week after the Sabbath was over, it reads in Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. On Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Jesus literally and physically rose from the dead. And that is what Easter is about. Jesus conquering death. Jesus, the man who lived on the earth in the first century, who came to be one of us, who was born a man who, who needed to sleep, a man who needed to eat, a man who felt very real pain when he was nailed to the cross, a man who suffered and died a horrific death. But we know that this was no ordinary man. He was also the Son of God. He was God in the flesh. And if you remember, as we've been going through the book of Mark, Jesus has demonstrated who he is by his power, and he has demonstrated he has power over the natural world by healing people of diseases and deformities and infirmities. And he also demonstrates he has power over the spiritual world as he casts out demons from people who were afflicted. And he even defeated the devil himself by, by quoting the word of God. And then Jesus also demonstrated his awesome power over creation itself by speaking a word and calming a hurricane force storm in an instant. And then he claimed the divine right to be able to forgive sins of mankind, a right that's only reserved for God himself. Jesus was truly man, and truly God. He was completely both. And on that cross, it is He who died. And on that Sunday morning, in the greatest possible demonstration of power, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The same Jesus who was tortured and beaten and verifiably killed, because Romans were experts at killing people. It was He that literally rose from the dead. He was physically resurrected back to life that Sunday morning. He walked out of the tomb fully alive. And that is what we celebrate. And what we need to understand, this is not just a story that we talk about. This is not just some religious tale. This is not a spiritual myth that we use to convey some hidden spiritual meaning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is, in fact, a fact of history. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best established, most attested to fact in all of ancient history. The preponderance of evidence and, and, and attestation for the resurrection of Christ is overwhelming. In fact, it's been argued, and I would agree with this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you cannot believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, based on the evidence, you really don't have the, the room to believe any ancient historical event because there's not near as much attestation. Which means that we don't need to believe in Julius Caesar and his Gallic Wars, and we don't need to believe in, in um, Aristotle and his poetics. 
We really don't need to believe anything that happened in ancient history that we've been told about. Nothing. Because nothing in ancient history has as much evidence or attestation as the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even when you consider the bare minimum facts argument, where, where both religious and skeptical scholars agree on the basic historical facts surrounding the resurrection, the agreed-upon evidence for the resurrection of Christ is overwhelming compared to any other event in human history in antiquity. And, and I've actually preached on that particular subject many times. And if you'd like more information about the historical nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you just take out one of those little information request cards, put your name, your email address on there, and I'll give you the information that you're looking for, and you can examine it at your own leisure. But, but as a matter of fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply a religious doctrine that we celebrate. It is a historical fact that we teach, that we believe, and we hope in. Jesus Christ literally and historically rose from the dead. And in so doing, he proved that he is what he claimed to be and that he can do what he promised to do. And brothers and sisters, he, what he promised to do was the most important thing that he could possibly do for us. He promised to save us from our sins. The sin that brings us death. The sin that separates us from the life-giving re uh, relationship with God that we were created for in the first place. He promised us that He was not going to leave us as we are. He promised to make us new. He promised to cleanse us and to regenerate us and to save us from God's just and righteous judgment. Which, by the way, is the prayer of King David, the forefather of Christ Himself. He prayed that God would cleanse him and make him new. That, that, that God would, would, would cleanse him and make him brand new. In fact, that's what we find in, in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 reads this way. To the choir master, the Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Some people think that that Psalm actually begins with verse 1. It actually begins with that little introduction that gives you the context for why David even wrote what he wrote. You see, this psalm was written by King David um, in response to him being convicted of his own sin, a very famous or infamous sin. David was this warrior king who was very successful, and he decided that one spring that he was going to stay home instead of going out to, to war with his troops, because after all, he'd earned it, right? He had been, he'd been chased around, and he ran for his life for years away from King Saul, who wanted to kill him. And then when, when Saul finally was killed by the Philistines, he, he became the king, the undisputed ruler of Israel, and God was with him. And, and David and his mighty men they had many battles against his enemies, and Israel really had the enemy on the run, and he had expanded his kingdom, and the nation of Israel was really the, one of the most powerful nations in the entire world. And it seemed that he didn't need to go out to do battle anymore with his troops, that he could stay back because his army was, was big enough and strong enough to handle everything on its own. So he had the luxury to stay behind while others went out to fight. And then one day, in his boredom, he was walking on the roof of his house when he, when he should have really been out to war with his troops, and he looked and he saw the woman Bathsheba who was bathing. And when he saw her, he should have turned away, preserving her dignity and his, but he didn't. Instead, he kept staring at her, and he began to, to be inflamed with lust in his heart for her. And then he sent for her. And then she went into him, and they had an affair. But the problem is, is that she was married to someone else. 
She was married to another man. She was married to one of his own soldiers who was away fighting his battle. And to make matters worse, she ends up pregnant. And David tries to cover it up because there's nothing like a good old-fashioned political cover-up is there. <laughs> David was trying to hide the fact that he got her pregnant. And, and, and her husband, um, David, had him sent back home so that then he could then go home to be with his wife and then think that the child was his. But this man was so honorable that he refused to even go see his wife, to even be close to his home because he couldn't think... Of, of indulging in, in spending time with his wife when his fellow troops were out in the field, you know, sleeping in, uh, in tents, you know, under the threat of, of death of their enemy. And so he decided, I'm not going to do that. And so David was really in a tight spot. He was stuck. People was gonna, were going to figure out what would happen real soon. And so David, instead of confessing his sin, he decided to send him back to the battle. And then he gave orders to, to, the, to the leader that he should be sent to the worst part of the battle and then withdraw from him so that he would be killed. And so now David was not only guilty of adultery, but he was also guilty of murder as well. And so now, with the husband out of the way, David takes Bathsheba as his, his wife, and he thinks that he's gotten away with it, that his sin is covered up, nobody's wiser. But God always knows our sin. And it says, but, but, and, 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 but God sent the, uh, Nathan the prophet to confront David in his sin. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 19, beginning in verse 7, it reads, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, understand, that's not the good way that we say you're the man, okay? This is, yeah, he's saying that you're actually the dirty man. You're the, you're, you're, the, you're the bad guy here. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why? Have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have, given, you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David's sin was no longer hidden anymore. It was, it was exposed for the world to see. David is confronted with the full weight of his sin. The lie that David had been living now has completely been undone. But I want you to notice... His response, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Once he was confronted with the truth, he doesn't make any excuses. He, he confesses. David is convicted of his sin and his heart is broken over his sin because, because, because he has not only sinned against Bathsheba, and not only has he sinned against Uriah, her husband, he has sinned against God himself. And the, the judgment and the wrath of God now abides on him. And he knows, he knows what he needs is mercy. And that is the context for him to write Psalm 51 that reads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David recognized that his sin was awful and it was a terrible stain upon his life. It's, it's horrible. He had murdered a man to cover up adultery. David's sin was, was a putrid stain on his life. 
like our sin is on ours. And the only way for him to be rid of it was for God to cleanse him of it because, because he can do nothing to undo what he has done. There are things that we do in our lives. There are things that we do right, that just simply cannot be undone, that cannot be washed away of our own accord. They just cannot be... You break a plate, you can't unbreak it. He has no power whatsoever to remove the stain of sin off of his life. And then notice he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me of my sin. Because sin is a filthiness that contaminates our entire lives. And one of the many pitfalls I think that, that we fall into when it comes to our relationship with God is that we think that the way to be right with God is for us to do more good stuff that outweighs our bad stuff. We've heard that before, right? In fact, we probably even said that before. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'm going to be okay. As if like our lives are this cosmic scale that somehow we have control to make it balance out before God. It is not like that. It's not like that. What could, what could David possibly do to balance out adultery? I mean, that's a serious sin by itself. What, what could David possibly do to balance out lying? What could he possibly do to balance out murder? How do you undo that? You can't undo that. There's nothing that he could do. Right? He can't make enough sacrifices. He cannot help enough people. He can't do enough good deeds to, to undo the stain of his sin. And, and neither can we. The Bible is really very clear in Isaiah. It says that our best efforts are righteousness. The best that we can possibly do is but filthy rags before God. Right? Like David, the only hope that we have is for God himself to wash away our sin and to forgive us. And notice what he says. For I knew, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. David doesn't make excuses. Right? He is aware that he is a sinner. And this is important because unless you understand that you're a sinner, the grace of God is really not going to make any sense to you. It's going to be meaningless to you. Unless you understand that your sinner Christ dying on the cross is just going to be a weird thing that's happened in history to you. I mean, Easter might as well be about bunnies and pastel-colored shirts and cream-colored chocolate eggs, as good as they are, right? Instead of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So an important step for understanding the gospel is understanding what the problem is. You will not understand the gospel unless you understand what the problem is. In fact, last Sunday, I had a conversation with the youth group, and we were talking about the gospel. And I was really trying to drive this point home to the teens and help them understand. And so I asked them, I said, if somebody were to walk in here right now and hand you a bottle full of pills and say, you need to take these, otherwise you're going to die, would you take them? And they're like, we're not stupid. No, of course not. I said, so then you go to the doctor, and he walks into the room and gives you a bottle full of pills and says, you need to take these, otherwise you're going to die because you have this rare disease. Would you take them? I'm like, well, of course I would. Right? I said, what's the difference? And I can see the light bulb go on, right, on one of them, right? And they're like, well, the difference is you know what the problem is. That's the difference. The good news of the gospel begins with the bad news. If you don't know what the problem is, you don't know that you need the cure. If you don't know the diagnosis, then you won't take the medicine. If you don't understand and acknowledge that you're a sinner, if you think that you're just a good person who occasionally makes mistakes, you don't understand that the, that the problem is that you're a sinner, then you will not accept the remedy for sin. Because there's no other reason to come to Jesus and pick up your cross and follow Him daily. There's not another reason for that. 
Now, some people will come to Jesus because they think, well, Jesus will just make me a better person. Or Jesus will make me happier. Or Jesus will make me healthier or wealthy. Right? But that is not the problems that Jesus came to solve. Right? Jesus did not come so that you can live your best life now. He didn't come so that you can live a pain-free, problem-free life. In fact, we're, pro we're promised the exact opposite. Jesus said in this life, you will have tribulation. Jesus came to solve your greatest problem, and that is your sin problem. And, be, and, and, and the beginning of the gospel is being aware that you even have a problem. And David was fully aware of his problem. And he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He confesses. He doesn't make an excuse. He doesn't try to justify it and say, well, you know, it's kind of somebody else's fault because this happened or that happened. Or, you know, the circumstances were against me. Or, you know, it just kind of happened on its own. He doesn't make excuses. He confesses. I have sinned against you, Lord. I have done evil in your sight. I knew it was wrong, and I did it anyway. I spurned your love. I spat upon your goodness. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David not only knew that, that he was a wretched sinner, but he also understood that God was right to judge sin. This is the, one of those things that I think we get really kind of cross-threaded with in, in our culture, is that we forget that God is just to deal with sin. And the fact of the matter is, is we expect Him to, at least the worst ones. Like, there's not anybody I know that's, that's going to be okay with God letting Hitler off the hook. But there's something in us that thinks that we're somehow intrinsically better than Him. David understood that God is justified to pour out His wrath upon sinners. If all God were to do was simply pronounce judgment on all creation and send everybody to hell, He would, he would be completely justified and praiseworthy to be, to be worshipped for what He's done. Because He would be right to do so. And David understood that. David understood that no one, no one, no one stands blameless before God. In fact, the, the Apostle Paul, quoting David in, in the 53rd Psalm, which is two Psalms over, says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to, to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David and Paul both know that everyone faces the exact same problem. And the problem that everyone faces is the same one that you faced from the very beginning. Notice what David says next. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or in other words, this ain't new. My sin is not new. Right? This isn't even new for me. I was born this way. I was born a sinner. I am by nature a sinner. As Paul says, we are by nature children of wrath. That is just who we are. That is who we are. That the nature of who we are is to be sinners. Our nature is to love our sin and reject God. That is who we are. So when we, when we hear people say, well, I was born this way to justify their sin, we say, amen to that. We are all born sinners. Every single one of us. 
And it's going to be our nature to be that way unless something happens. We will remain that way and will remain justly condemned by God. But notice what David says next. He goes from his understanding of God's righteousness and the understanding that he, was, that he is rightly condemned, he was born this way, but then he still comes to God for mercy and says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What you need to realize is hyssop is a small bushy plant that grew and that was used and that was well suited to be a brush in essence. And they used it, the Israelites used it in Egypt right before the exodus um, and they used it to apply the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses for the very first Passover. Remember Pharaoh, he would not let the Israelites go. Like they were in bondage and, and Moses said, you let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And then God sends several plagues to demonstrate his power. But Pharaoh's like, no, his heart was hardened by God. And, and then all that was left was this one plague where God would send an, an angel into Egypt to kill all the firstborn of all of the families, of all of the animals. And the Israelites were commanded, right, if you want to be spared of this, this plague of this slaughter, then what you need to do is you need to kill the, a spotless Passover lamb and dip the hyssop right, plant into the blood and then brush it on the doorpost and the destroying angel would then come and see the blood of the lamb and then literally pass over the house. That's where we get the term Passover from. As this angel went through Egypt killing the firstborn. And and that was right there. That's what hyssop was used for. It became a sign of cleansing, a sign of purification. And what, what David is saying here is, is wash me. right? Wash me with the, the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Remove my sins from me. Now obviously, he's, he's thinking about the sacrifices at the time, but this is very clearly pointing forward to the perfect lamb of God, right? who, would, who would then shed his own blood on the, the last Passover to wash away our sins. That's what David's talking about here. And then he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Because there is no sin, there, there is no joy in sin. Ultimately, there is no joy in sin. There is no gladness. Cleanse me of my sins, Lord. And then he says, I want you to notice this. This is really critical you pay attention to. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And this is, this is the part that I really hope that you're paying attention to. Because you see, David understood something very important here. He understood that what he needed was not just for God to forgive his sins. Okay, I want you to hear me on that. David understood that what he needed was not just for God to forgive his sins. He needed more than his sins to be just forgiven. He needed something more than just being washed clean. Brothers and sisters, you do not simply need only forgiveness. You need something more. Because think about this. If God forgives your sins right now and he washes you clean today, and that's it, what happens next? You're going to sin Again. And then what? If all that's been accomplished is that your sin has been washed away, then what you have is a clean slate. A clean slate that you will then get dirty again because it's who you are. That is your nature. You will sin again. It is your nature. You were born that way. 
What you need is not just forgiveness. You also need a clean heart. You don't need just a clean life. You need a clean heart. You need a, you need a new nature. You need a new heart. And notice right here what it says. He does not say, clean my heart, Lord. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, Lord, I want you to clean my heart. No, he says instead, create in me a clean heart. Look at the words. Create in me a clean heart. The word in Hebrew here for create is the word bara. And what it means is to create or to shape. And this word bara is the same exact word that has been used in Genesis 1.1 where it says, in the beginning, God, bara, created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, which it means to create. It does not mean to clean. So he's not asking God to clean his existing heart. Right? He is not asking God to clean up his existing nature. He is asking God to give him a new heart, to give him a new nature. He's asking God to remove his heart of stone and put in him a heart of flesh, to transform his heart. David is not simply, he does not need a behavioral fix. Right? He doesn't need his behavior simply changed. He needs his heart changed. The truth that we need to come to terms with is that Jesus did not simply come to change your behavior. That's the easy part. He came to change your heart. If you have children, you understand what I'm talking about here. You can get your kids to obey out of the sheer force of your will and personality. Right? You can get your kids to do what you want them to do. Right? All the while they're, they're walking off their room cussing you out in their minds. Right? right? What you're after is a changed heart. And that's what Jesus came. He came to change your heart. He came to make you new. He didn't come to make you a better version of who you are. He came to make you brand new. You see, just being forgiven doesn't restore you back to a relationship with God. All that does is bring you back to even. It brings your account back to zero. It takes away the negative balance and makes it zero again. Right? But what happens with a negative or, or with a zero balance? It's your nature to then make it negative again. In order for you to have a relationship with God, you need more than zero. You need a new heart, a clean heart, a righteous heart, a heart that desires God, because unless you have a changed heart, you don't desire God. And the only way for you to have that is for God to give it to you. Because you cannot change your own heart. You can't create within yourself a clean heart. Only, only God can do that. That's why David prays for God not only to cleanse him of his sin, but he prays for a new heart. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Give me a new spirit that desires holiness. Give me a spirit that, 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 dis, that despises sin. Give me a new spirit that desires to walk in your righteousness. Cast me not away from your presence. Because the presence of God is what our hope is. That's what our hope is. To live in the presence of God forever and ever. His life-giving presence forever and ever. That's what hell is. is a separation from the life-giving presence of God. Right? And he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because without the Holy Spirit, there is no life. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no life. Without the Holy Spirit, we're just going to continue to walk around living life empty and vain and broken. We need the Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to comfort us and to regenerate us and restore us. And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a right, with, with willing spirit. 
David's life is a reflection of our own. He is a broken sinner in need of forgiveness and transformation, just like all of us. And this prayer right here might as well be our own. It might as well be our own because we're born sinners who had, who had sinned against God in horrible ways. And, and here's the thing. Of course, you know, we're not guilty of adultery. I hope not. And, and hopefully no one in here has ever murdered anyone, right? But let's just, let's not fool ourselves. Our sin is just as bad. Okay? Our sin is just as horrific. The lies that we've told to ourselves and the lies that we've told other people are scandalous, right? The betrayal that we have committed, the betrayal, you have betrayed people in your life in a bad way. We all have. You have hurt people so deeply that there are people in your life that you've hurt so deeply that they will never forget it, maybe not ever even forgive it. You've been selfish and self-centered. Even the things that you've done in the past for good, and maybe even some things you think you're doing for God, has been done with selfish motives so that you can get the glory. Because it's all about you. You've committed lust in your minds. You've stolen. You've blasphemed a holy and righteous God. You've worshipped at the idols of money and self and entertainment and sex and popularity. We have all been covered in our sin, and God would be just and righteous to judge us. And in His coming judgment, I want you to hear me on this, His coming judgment is going to be awful and it's going to be terrible. His judgment is going to be horrifying for those who experience it. His wrath and judgment will be unlike anything we have ever seen. And you might say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that it's going to be that awful? Well, I know that because I want you to look at the reaction of Jesus Himself before His crucifixion. In fact, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. <clears throat> so this is the point of the story in Mark where Jesus has already had the Last Supper. He has already sent away Judas. Right? He's already washed the disciples' feet. And now they're making their way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And soon he's going to be arrested. Beginning in verse 32, it says, And when they went to the place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. If you're really paying attention, this right here should, should stop you in your tracks. <laughs> He's talking about, this is, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus is becoming emotionally distraught here. He's not only troubled, but he is, he's troubled greatly, right? And, and he is distressed, it says. And, and, and the idea in Greek that's being communicated here is that he is experiencing fear. Fear to the point that he's about to lose courage. That's what the text says about Jesus, the Son of God. He says, remain here and watch and Going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. Do you hear that? He, he, he asked that, that he wouldn't have to do what he was about to do. And he, and he said, Abba, Father, or literally Daddy, right? all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
take it away from me. I, I, I don't want it. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to drink from it. If it's possible for me not to have to do what I'm about to do, I don't want to do it. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus didn't just pray that one time. He prayed, he prayed it three times. Three times. He asked the Father to take the cup away from him. Three times he asked to not have to go through this. But three times he said, not my will, but yours be done. In the Gospel of Luke, he actually says, it, it actually says that he was so emotionally distraught by this that, 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 that sweat, he sweat drops of blood. Okay, I don't know how worried and upset and distressed you have to be to sweat blood, but I'm just going to tell you, like, it has to be more than I've ever experienced in my life. See, sweating drops of blood, and it says an angel had to attend him and strengthen him. Jesus, the Son of God, okay, the one who cast out a legion of demons with a word, right? The, the, the one who fed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and a couple of pieces of bread, the man who calmed a hurricane with his word, Right? The man who walked on water and raised dead people back to life. Jesus, God in the flesh, is terrified in this moment. Why? Brothers and sisters, it's not because he was afraid to be beaten. And he was not scared of, of having a cat of nine tails rip his flesh off of his body. He was, not, he was not scared of having a crown of thorns jammed into his head. And he was not Afraid of nine-inch nails being driven into his hands and his feet to nail him to the cross. And he was not afraid of suffocating to death, hanging on the cross. Because the fact of the matter is there have been thousands of martyrs, right? people who have died for the Christian faith, people who have sang hymns while they're setting them on fire. People who've had their skin flayed off thinking they're torturers. Because they were closer to becoming clothed in the righteousness of Christ. People who gladly died for their faith. People who were joyful with the idea that they themselves could suffer alongside their Redeemer. But God in the flesh is afraid of, of this? No. It was not torture. It was not the, the, pre, the prospect of death that troubled Jesus at all. What terrified him was the prospect of him having to drink from that cup, the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus knew that he was about to experience the awesome and terrible wrath of Almighty God, the wrath that Adam deserved, the wrath that Abraham deserved, the wrath that Moses deserved, the wrath that David deserved. The wrath that you and I deserve. The wrath of billions and billions and billions and billions of people. What they deserve. All of God's anger and all of His wrath was about to be poured out on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of His righteous anger, His righteous fury, His hatred for sin was about to be poured out on Christ. And He was terrified. That right there is how vile your sin is. That's how polluted our hearts are without Jesus Christ. We deserve the wrath of God that is so unbelievably awful that it made the Son of God sweat drops of blood. And as he asked, he asked three times to let the cup pass from him, but then said, not as I will, but you, as you will. And then after praying, Jesus got up, and willingly went to his doom. 
He willingly allowed himself to be arrested and beaten and mocked and hung on the cross. And hanging there in the Judean sun on the hill called Golgotha, bloody and dehydrated and suffocating, Jesus, the Son of God, drank down every single last drop of the wrath of Almighty God, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God the Father turned his back on God the Son for the first and only time in all of eternity. Receiving in his body the full fury of God against his sin, against our sin. And then in that final moment, he said, as he lifted his head triumphantly, it is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. And Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sin. He he died. The Son of God died so that your sins could be washed away. And so you could have created within you a clean heart, a new heart. And as they laid him to rest... In the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And as the stone was rolled over the entrance, the Son of God lay there lifelessly on that cold slab. And all of his disciples ran away as cowards because they had no hope, because their hope had died with Christ. But on Sunday morning, when everyone thought that all hope was lost, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose to new life and He walked out of that tomb as proof that the payment for your sins has been accepted by God the Father and that those who believe in Jesus Christ are set free. Amen. That is what Easter is about. That is what we celebrate. The most attested to historical event in all of ancient history proves that God is real, That God hates sin, that His wrath is terrible, but God is loving and gracious enough that He came to earth to live a life that you couldn't live, to pay a penalty that you couldn't pay. And all you need to do is do exactly what Jesus said, is repent and believe the gospel. You were born a sinner, and God's justice rightly rested upon you. And on that cross, Jesus traded places with you and took upon himself your sin and in return gives you the righteousness that you need so you can no longer be the enemy of God but be part of the family of God. And we, like Christ, can cry out, Abba, Father. The resurrection is proof that God does indeed love you. If there's something that you need to hear today, it's that. The creator of the universe loves you, and He loves you deeply. And He calls you to be like David, to confess and repent of your sin, and ask God to create within you a clean heart. And if you will do that by faith, He is faithful to forgive you of your sins and save you. Because sin and death have been forever defeated by Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that is what we celebrate here on Easter. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.